0: Two, Okay. Welcome to Sports Med Res' This Week in Review podcast, where we highlight the recent news in sports medicine research. Over the past three weeks, we had five posts on sportsmedres.org. That's R-E-S dot These included two statements on rhabdomolysis and asthma. Another post was about a study where the authors found that a former female collegiate athlete with a history of severe knee injury, may experience poorer quality of life than those without a history of injury. We also had a post on a study where the authors concluded that classifying cardiac murmurs as pathological or physiological was not helpful in detecting structural heart disease. This week, we have Kyle Harris, one of our regular writers here, to discuss with us a recent study that he summarized entitled, Why, When, and Which Patients' Non-Operative Treatment of Anterior Cruciate Ligament Injury Fails, an Exploratory Analysis of the COMPARE Trial. The authors concluded in this study that after trying non-operative treatments for an anterior cruciate ligament injury, people who report knee instability concerns or worsening knee pain or function are more likely to receive an ACL reconstruction than their peers. While preparing the post for this article, Kyle Harris and I had some discussions about the people who are opting for surgery and why, and to continue this conversation this week, we have Kyle. Thanks for joining us, Kyle. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here. So Kyle, I think one of the interesting things with this study from the parent study perspective was um, there weren't big differences between the people who had an early reconstruction or an optional delayed and among the people who had an optional delayed acl reconstruction about half of them never needed a reconstruction and right. so this study kind of picks up from there saying well why did half those people end up needing a acl reconstruction and they tried to look at it partially by focusing on whether or not a person reported instability uh, events and patient preference for surgery and change in patient reported outcome measures. Um, I think one of the things that you and I both picked up on was there was 12 out of about the 41 or so participants that ended up with an ACL reconstruction that suggested they had a strong preference for surgery. Right. And so I wanted to kind of get your sense on things of what's your take on how we should interpret the fact that here are 41 people who are opting for surgery and 12 of them are saying they have a strong preference.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, the line definitely grabbed me as I was reading it and then, and was kind of translating this because for me looking at this idea of preference speaks a lot to how, what influence a clinician has on a patient, right? So if you have patients, as soon as injury occurs, right. Uh, certified athletic trainers, other medical professionals are are going through the process of imaging the injuries, talking to the patient about what options are available, right? All of these things starts to paint a picture for patients as to what they can expect, because a lot of times patients are going through this for the first time. The way I initially interpreted the article was that these patients somehow had an idea that surgery was going to be a better option for them. And that could be based off of instability. It could be based off of returning to to activities they were doing pre-injury. But to me, that almost spoke to a patient who was randomized into a certain group in a study for a non-operative treatment, even though they would have preferred to start off in getting surgery. And I thought that kind of spoke a lot to where does that preference come from?
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because that's always a caveat of doing a clinical trial is you could have a person who gets randomized to something they really didn't want, you know? Right. And so, if my bias was I always wanted my, to have my ACL reconstructed, then it makes a lot of sense that these people the minute the opportunity arose, they said, "I want my surgery now."
1: Right. Right, and it right uh, uh, even as myself as a clinician, you know, I want to be honest with my with with my patients. If I have a patient that I think is going down a long-term road of needing surgery or needing long-term rehabilitation. I want to be honest with them about that. I want to talk to them about what to expect. And I feel like if clinicians are doing that, we we want to know the impact that we have on those patients. Are we actually predetermining them or giving them exposure to something that they might not actually need? I mean, it, it just speaks to a kind of an interesting influence that we might have that we don't know the impact yet.
0: Right. I think it definitely expresses the importance initially on day one, having that conversation about what their expectations are and what they know about the ACL reconstruction, not just us teaching them about it, but also hearing what they have seen from their teammates and other people around them. And then it's interesting, too. I guess if we flip the coin a little bit, what the study also found was the majority of these people got surgery without expressing a preference for the surgery. So right, what's right. your take on like the 28 or so people that ended up having that paradigm?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, you know, to me, and I, I'm probably somewhat biased in how I look at that based off of the, the 12 out of 41, but to me, we're now we're starting to talk about patients who maybe are somewhat responding to treatment, maybe they have some instability with non-operative treatment. But they're having enough instability that maybe the clinician that they're working with is starting to, to give them ideas that surgery is an option. Maybe that's something we want to try. Like, are, are we actually driving patients toward a certain treatment type earlier than giving the, the original treatment, like non-operative treatment, kind of a chance to work? I mean, I, I think if you don't have a preference for surgery and you're ending up getting surgery, that's a big step to take. There has to be some influence there as to why you're going down that path.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. They authors told us that about 90% of these people are saying they have instability issues. And yet here's this large group that's saying they don't have a preference for surgery, but are going to have surgery. And so I think you're right. I think there's a big part of this of, is the clinician potentially having a large influence on this or another stakeholder? It could be also a coach or a parent that's saying, you really should have surgery. Yeah, um, you know, so that's a pressure.
1: That's, that's a really interesting idea because, and I'm thinking about the influence that even teammates have on each other too, right? If you're active, if you're a high school or a college athlete, you might be going through an ACL injury for the first time, but you know somebody else who has. They went and got surgery right away. They returned in so many days. If you want to emulate that, if you want to follow suit, right, you might actually have responded really well to this non-operative treatment, but in your head somewhere, you have this idea that surgery is the path that's going to get like, is going to be the best thing for you. And that, I mean, I think what, what a lot of these trials and there's a lot of different papers that we've talked about on sports medres, you know, have kind of said, is that, that we don't know, we're still trying to figure out who responds to operative and non-operative treatment.
0: Yeah. And you wonder too, how many of these people are kind of just, well, I don't know. I'll get it because that's what everybody else is getting right. You know, like they're maybe not continuing in sport. They're not, um, troubled as much by their instability issues, but in, in any cell reconstruction is what everybody else is doing. So I'm going to yeah. get it. So yeah. It's not pressure. It's just assumptions of what the norm is.
1: Yeah. I, and I think that that's a big part of it. I mean, that's something we've been looking at for, I mean, right. Literature has been diving into this for a really long time. And that idea of copers, you know, being able to cope with not having an ACL, you know, it, there's a lot of different factors that seem to be involved with this. So right. it's still something we're trying to learn, but I think non-operative treatment tends to, especially in a more active population, tends to be something that's not nearly as discussed with patients as early on as surgery is.
0: Yeah. And I, I kind of wish that we had known more information about the people who did not opt for surgery. You know, like 90% right. of people reporting instability concerns, that's pretty alarming but it's a different story if the copers who managed to go without surgery are only reporting 10% instability issues versus they're also saying 90% of the, like 90% of them are reporting instability concerns like right. that's telling, teaching us two different things and I, I would have loved to have known what that non non operative success group looked like because if they're also telling us they have instability concerns then maybe the instability concerns not really a driving factor for the choice of surgery I suspect it is but you can't tell without having that piece of information
1: yeah absolutely right and 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 even you take this a step further that you start to get into this this con this conversation with with whoever with your patients right and you start to think about where they came from and where they're heading towards I mean previous level of activity is always important their future expectations are going to be important I mean, I, I just I, I really got the impression from, from this that there's this group that we know exists and we know is out there, but there seems to be a lot of different influences into what's helping them make the decision that is best for them. And I think we need to know a lot more about that. I just it really struck me as I read it.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. The way you just presented that, it made me think that in some ways, you know, this paper had a very strong emphasis on who fails. I would have been more right. interested in some ways of knowing who succeeded. And I think one of the few things we do have a sense about those who succeeded was they reported less worsening in patient reported outcomes than those who had surgery, yeah. um, to flip it around the way that the authors had presented it. Those who needed, who opted for surgery were the ones that were reporting worsening, more worsening symptoms over sure. time, which makes sense. If I'm having more problems, then I'm more likely to say, okay, let's do the surgery. Right. Um, But on the flip side, the person who's successful is the person who might be maintaining benefit from the non-operative management or experiencing benefit. And I think one of the take-home messages I think we need to encourage people to do is this is a reason to have conversations with your patients throughout the rehabilitation process and to collect patient-reported outcomes to kind of monitor, is this a person who is improving or stabilizing, or is this a person that's actually getting worse because if they're getting worse, then we may need to have a new conversation with them about the potential for surgery.
1: Yeah, right. And uh, man, and as it's such a good point to make, right? And I, and I was taking a note as you as you were talking as well, because in in my mind, just the way that some of the what was in the paper, and I understand the focus of the paper was understanding patients who do not respond. So, being that's the focus, you're going to report more on the patients that did not do well with this non-operative treatment but right bigger picture now like are we actually because this the way it's presented are we still more predisposed as clinicians to think about that surgery as the first option and just kind of see if this other thing works out because catching a fa- uh, someone who fails non-operative treatment is really important if you are if you have a really unstable knee giving away like quality of life goes down it's hard to do activities of daily living we we obviously want to make sure that those individuals get the option that's gonna return them to those activities and keep their quality of life high, right? But we're, the way we present this oftentimes is, this is who fails non-operative treatment. And I think there, right? We're, if this whole thing can come back to this idea of bias and influence, right? Uh, clinicians who are reading this paper are kind of getting that spin a little bit of, right? This is who fails, we're focused on the people that fail, like just kind of focus on who is successful at this treatment and what do they look like? And, you know, I, I certainly would never want to, I think all intentions are good. I think it reported what it was supposed to report on, but that idea of, of bias I think is, is a deeper thread than the athletic trainer that sees a person who just ruptured their ACL and, and completely spins it one way. I think overall we might be a little bit predisposed to thinking about surgery as this primary thing still.
0: Yeah. I I know that that this study probably isn't what gets us to, um, what I'm about to say, but I think it would be beneficial for the field. If we got to the point where we could sit down with a patient at the time of an ACL injury and say, okay, we're going to try non-operative care, but if you start experiencing instability events, then we're going to have to have a conversation about whether or not this is the right course. Furthermore, we're going to track your, your, um, patient reported outcomes and your perception of knee function over time. If we start seeing you decline by X percent, then we're also going to have a conversation about whether or not this is the appropriate course of action for you. So I I would love to see us progress to this idea of these are the benchmarks where we need to reassess our treatment strategy. And I feel like a lot of athletic trainers work that way, right? Like we start off with a decision plan. We implement the treatment protocol. If we don't see what we would have expected in improvement, then we say, okay, let's reassess and right. change our strategy. And I think it would be beneficial if that was kind of the approach we had here. I'm not saying that there's, not a, there's obviously going to be people who need an ACL reconstruction right away. Sure. But for the patient who wants to try non operative care, it would be nice to be able to say to them upfront, like, these are the things we're going to keep an eye on if we see red right. flags we're going to need to have a conversation.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think that I, right. And what does that say to your patient too, right? When you sit down and say, you know, we have, we have options on the table. This is what I think we need to start with. We're going to check in with you. We're going to talk to you. We're going to get this information. We're going to make a decision on how you react and how your body reacts. Right. I think that that really speaks to a profession and a field that's focused on, the outcomes of an individual and how an individual responds, which I, I, I would love to see. I think that that's a really powerful nonverbal statement to make to patients is we're looking at this based on you because we know that there are a lot of options out there. We know you've heard about surgery. There's this other option. We're gonna try this first. And now there's also caveats to that too, right? If you have a patient that comes in and might re- respond really well to non-operative treatment, but really wants to get back for a season, you know their motivations are going to be you know you have to talk to your patients about what those motivations are so i, I think there's so I, there's reasons to discuss on both sides of the coin here but i think it's a really good point to make
0: yeah and i i think too it makes i think the it very clear what the tangible goals are and what the expectations are of each path of you know here's what we can get out of the acl reconstruction And yes, there is a non-operative care. We know about half of the people who try it will succeed. And in order to see if you're succeeding, here's the criteria that we use at our institution to see if this is appropriate. And I think it gives a a nice objective way. And I mean, maybe it's something that needs to evolve over time and it's tailored to different populations, but I think it's a nice way of framing it for the patient. And it helps the patient make an informed decision of, I don't know if I really want to be that person who tries to non-operative care and has to have three instability events before I have surgery. Maybe, but I just want to go ahead and get
1: it now. Right. That's right. their turn. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's, I think it's really powerful. And, and right. We keep coming back to this, like, you know, how are you talking to your, pa- your patients? What are you saying to them? How are you framing the discussion? You know, are, is, and, and what are they, what are they seeing? I think another question that's important to ask is too, is, you know, what do you know about this? You know, if, if I tell you, you have an ACL rupture, like, what do you know? What have What's you heard good? about? Like I, I those, yeah. are, well, you see it on TV. We, you know, you, you see athletes on TV that are, you know, getting reconstructive surgery and it's on the banner at the bottom of ESPN. Like those are all things that I think play small roles into what our patients expect and think is going to happen. And if we're not in tune with that, we're not as in tune as we need to be with our patients.
0: And I think that's kind of setting us up for the next question, which is, what's the key take home from an article like this? And it seems to be, we need to have better conversations with our patients um, and to hear what they're coming into the experience with and to address those preferences, expectations, and um, perhaps reinforce the truths, but also debunk the myths.
1: Right. Right. Right, I think that we oftentimes maybe don't, and I, and I've been guilty of this too. Where I, I think, you know, you have lots of patients, or it's a really busy time of year. You know, you have an idea in your head of how this is going to go, and I think to show that open mindedness to patients, I think will help them keep an open mind about their own process. So I, you know, I think that that's, I think it's a great take home message, and I think it's something that we could just we could talk for hours about. Right, you can talk for hours about how. What these influences are? How do we connect with our patients? How do we understand what they're going through and what they're thinking? And how, like you said, to debunk, you know, preconceived notions that might not be as accurate. I I think is is important. Maybe something that we're we're not always fo- as focused on as we could be.
0: Yeah, and I think we need to keep in mind too. Like we say, oh, it's a one and two shot of um, succeeding with an ACL recon- with a conservative management after an ACL injury. But if you're the one that fails, it feels like it was a 100% chance of it failing, you know, right in perception. So I think that's all the more reason why early on, we need to ensure the patient's involved in those decisions and is involved at a level where they can make an informed decision about that.
1: Right, right. And I think that's where, you know, literature coming out and, and, and discussing these different treatment options to talk about the benefits of both sides i think is just really important because i think clinicians need to be able to give the benefits of non-operative treatment versus operative treatment here's what you'll get with this course of action here's what you'll get with this course of action you know we're going to help you through and, and you're going to make the best decision for you we're going to work on it together i think i think it's powerful i think it's where we go in a lot of different in a lot of different settings i think we we need to make sure we continue to do that here
0: Perfect. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate you taking the time today to chat.
1: Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoyed it.
0: Have a good one. You too. Don't forget that we also share extra material on social media. And if you're an athletic trainer who's looking for CUs, then please check out our nine online evidence-based practice courses available through the Human Kinetics website. We will have links to our summaries and the courses on our website and in our show notes remember, you can always follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We will be back next month with more sports medicine research. Until then, have a fun one.